I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. More than 3.3 million American students graduated from high school in 2016 and are now navigating the transition to the next stage in their lives. For most students, that means getting ready to head off to college. In fact, roughly three in four new high school graduates are college intending, meaning that they've been admitted to and decided to attend college this fall. Yet if recent trends hold, some 10% of those college intending students will fail to enroll. This phenomenon, known as summer melt, is most common among low-income students and students of color, whose overall rates of college enrollment and completion are lowest. What causes summer melt? What can be done to combat it? And can the answers to those questions provide new lessons about how to help students clear other hurdles to completing a college degree? I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and my guest today is Ben Castleman, an assistant professor at the University of Virginia's Curry School of Education. You can find a review of Ben's new book, the 160-character solution on our website at educationnext.org. Ben, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Marty. Really looking forward to the conversation. So there's a lot I hope we can discuss, but since it's July, let's start with this issue of summer melt. What is it and why does it happen? Great question. And, and, and the fact that we're in mid-July, I think it helps to think of this in terms of someone, a student who graduated high school maybe a month ago, maybe just a few weeks, and, and what might be going on with them. So hopefully that's a student who, while they were during their senior year, applied to college. Hopefully they got accepted. In most cases, they will have applied for financial aid. Um, and they've chosen where to go as of high school graduation. For a long time, we assumed that students who did all those things were going to get through the summer without much problem and go to college in the fall. And, you know, we kind of knew they might not go to the college they had picked as of graduation, but we assumed they would go somewhere. And what we've learned over several years of research uh, is that that student who right now, July 14th, uh, a few weeks ago was pretty sure they were going to go to college, in the weeks that have uh, um, passed since and in the weeks to come, has probably run into a series of complicated and unanticipated tasks related to paying for college and, and completing required tasks in order to matriculate. So that's everything from finalizing their financial aid to making sense of loan uh, opportunities to figuring out how to pay for unanticipated fees like going to orientation and dealing with a bunch of paperwork, housing, placement tests, health insurance. And in the face of that complexity, particularly during the summer where students don't typically have access to professional assistance, we find that a substantial share who did everything they were supposed to in high school failed to actually enroll anywhere in the year after high school. Yeah, one of the things that's most interesting about this phenomenon to me is the extent to which it was really hidden because it fell really through the cracks between the K-12 system and the higher education system during this period where students are left without much in the way of direct support. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I was a former high school administrator or a former teacher, and and this is something that I saw firsthand. I had these seniors who were really smart, really hardworking, 
took the initiative to apply to college. We helped them with financial aid in school. And they'd walk across the graduation stage and, uh, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd give them a hug and we'd assume they'd go off to college in the fall. And on the college side, college administrators, I think, would excitedly welcome whoever would show up on the first day of, of, uh, of the fall term and assume that if students who they admitted weren't there, it's because they went somewhere else. And I think it's really a function of putting together two sources of, of data um, that, that have allowed us to zero in on this summer melt phenomenon. So I think high schools have gotten better about just asking their graduates at the end of senior year, what are you planning to do? Are you going to college? If so, where? Um, and then data sources like the National Student Clearinghouse that give us a glimpse at college enrollment rates across the country at the individual student level, when we pair those together, it allows us to kind of close the loop and see actually some of those students we were hugging across the graduation stage um, didn't make it anywhere. So from the high school side, we should figure out what we can do for them. And as the college administrators, I think they can use the data in the same way of, huh, some of the students we admitted, we would have loved to come. They didn't show up anywhere. So how can we better support those students to come to our campus? Now, you just didn't just see the problem uh, and document it for the first time. You set out to try and address it. So Tell us about the interventions that you've developed to try and, uh, I guess, uh, offset this problem. Sure, happy to. And, and uh, important to point out that these are interventions um, that were really collaborative efforts. So initially, uh, with my colleagues Karen Arnold and Katie Wortman from Boston College, and then and then over the last several years with my colleague Lindsay Page, uh, with whom I was in, in graduate school at Harvard and and who's now at the University of Pittsburgh. But we've developed uh, a variety of strategies to support students during the summer months. The, the first of those strategies was when I was uh, just beginning graduate school, but still working as a, as a high school administrator. And it was a fairly simple strategy. We, we saw that, that students in our school were uh, failing to enroll in the fall, despite planning to attend as of the end of high school. And so we said to ourselves, well, we've got these school counselors who, who worked with students during the academic year. Let's just pay them a little more to work for a couple months over the summer. And that way, if students come, in, uh, come across challenges, the counselors are there to support them. And we can have the counselors do some outreach, see if students are running into any challenges. And, and, and that was our first intervention, having counselors, one, working during the summer, two, reaching out to students. And what we saw was just a couple, few hours of outreach could lead to a substantial share, uh, a, excuse me, a substantial increase in the share of students enrolling. Probably worth pointing out that we, we designed these interventions from the start in the context of randomized control trials. Of course, not because we wanted to deny any student a service we thought could benefit them, but, but much more so because we wanted to generate rigorous evidence of the unique benefit of providing summer assistance above and beyond all the other factors that we know affect whether students enroll in college. And from a couple summers of, of having counselors reach out, we saw that we were increasing the share that uh, enrolled in college by 10% or, or more um, relative to students who didn't get out the out didn't get the outreach and and particularly encouraging we saw that students were not only more likely to go to college they were also more likely to persist into their sophomore year as a, a as a function of getting over these these summer hurdles now paying uh, so, administrators additional funds to work with students over the summer is pretty expensive though am I right yeah no that's a great transition to, to I think where we've gone in the, in the year since. Um, relative to providing students with additional financial aid, hiring counselors to work over the summer is not as expensive. And the fact remains, it still costs $100, $150 per student. 
or so to hire a counselor to work over the summer months. And so for some districts, we know that's a difficult uh, uh, cost to, to incur. The other thing we saw, and this is going back all the way to 2008 when we did our first pilot study, is that counselors were spending a tremendous amount of time just trying to get a student, uh, just trying to get in touch with the student. They'd call them and their voicemails would be full. They'd send emails and they'd bounce back. And it was back in 2008 where an enterprising counselor said, well, let me try texting them. And they counselor texted students and the responses were almost instantaneous. Like before the counselor hit the send button, the messages were flowing back. And, and that led, uh, actually, as part of my, my dissertation, at, at the Harvard School of Education um, uh, to, to try designing an automated, scalable, but still personalized text messaging campaign that would send students personalized information and reminders about tasks they had to complete in order to successfully enroll in college. Um, and so we did that same way we had done the earlier campaigns. We, we worked with schools or nonprofits to gather information about where students were planning to go to college. We went on college websites and looked up um, what students had to do in order to matriculate, put those two sources of information together, and then worked with a text messaging platform to send messages out to thousands of students at a time, but that provided each individual student with very specific and personalized guidance about what they had to do to matriculate. And so here's where we get the title of your book, The 160-Character Solution, uh, and trying to use text messages as a strategy. The subtitle of the book is How Text Messages and Other Behavioral Strategies Can Improve Education. So you're really presenting this as an example of an application of the principles of behavioral economics. Can you tell us uh, what makes it uh, a application of those principles? Sure. Uh, and this is one of the things that I think, you know, in, in the process of, of um, doing my dissertation, working on this intervention, I obviously did a lot of reading about related work. Uh, and ours was by no means, this, this text messaging campaign was by no means the first to use text messaging to to hopefully drive positive behavior change. There had been work in, in public health uh, to use texting as a way to help people stop smoking, keep exercising. There had been work in, in, um, in consumer finance around using text as a way to help people uh, achieve their savings goals. And so in the process of reading that, what struck me is that even though each text message is only 160 characters, the way text messages operate, they pack a pretty powerful behavioral punch. And so first, um, every text message, at least for a moment in time, captivates our attention, right? Our phones chirp, they vibrate, we look at the content, and it's all we see for that moment. It's not like email where we get hundreds of messages in our inbox at a time. It's not like Facebook where there's dozens if not hundreds of, of information and, and visuals competing for our attention. Every text for a moment in time stands out as its own content. So from an attentional capture point of view, it's very important. Second, by virtue of being short, 160 characters or fewer per message, it forces us as researchers or educators or policymakers to take complex and uh, concepts in information and to consolidate them into timely bursts of information that are much more digestible and actionable for a student. Third, um, the messages, uh, text prompt people to follow through on actions they might want to do but are otherwise putting off. And so by virtue of texting students about required summer tasks once a week or so, we're hopefully keeping top of mind things that students know they need to do but are, but are perhaps procrastinating on. And, and the fourth and final behavioral punch is that 
uh, we can configure text in a way that make it very, very easy for a young person to get help. They don't need to look up someone's email address, go into a school, pick up the phone. Getting help can be as simple as writing back to the message, and we can then connect them to a person on the other end. So we're also um, greatly reducing the hassle costs associated with getting one-on-one assistance. And part of the idea, as I understand it, is also, though, that uh, these students, by not enrolling in college, are doing something that maybe is not in their own rational self-interest uh, and that you're trying to nudge their behavior to better reflect what you see as their long-term goals. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I, that's how I would characterize it because I think one of the concerns, and the, the, um, you mentioned the review that Jay Green wrote um, about my book, but I think this is certainly could be, could, could be a, a concern raised about behavioral strategies more generally is, is at what point are we going down a slippery slope where we're, we are leveraging psychological and behavioral principles about decision-making to, um, you know, at, at the extreme, potentially manipulate what people do or to distort their decision-making in a way that those individuals might not in reflection feel was in their best interests. And so uh, in our behavioral work and certainly in our, in our educational texting campaigns, I think we, we try to stay very much on the bright side of not telling people what's best for them, not even presenting information in a way that leads them down only one path, but rather to do one of two things, um, to provide information in a simplified, concrete way that helps people follow through on their own intentions um, by, by communicating with them about resources or important deadlines that, that they might not otherwise know about. Uh, and I think the Summer Milk campaign is a very good example of that, where students have already applied to college, they've indicated they plan to go as of the end of high school, in that instance, I want that person to have information about what they need to do in order to follow through on that intention, and I think the texts do that. Um, I think another way we can use behavioral strategies is to prompt people to make active and informed choices. Um, so we're still not telling people what to do, but if we don't know about their intentions, we're still presenting information or framing information in a way that uh, primes and prompts someone to to actively think about what is it that I want, what's the pathway that I want to go down to and that I feel is in my best circumstances, and then hopefully make an informed decision based on that. But I think both of those are on one side of a bright line um, where we're not using these strategies to presume to tell people what's in their best interests. The concern that Jay Green raises in the review, and, and I should mention Jay is a professor at the University of Arkansas who wrote um, what I think is a very uh, thoughtful review of, of the book uh, for Education Next, is that potentially by using behavioral strategies to, say, nudge students who had decided otherwise not to actually enroll in college to enroll, they may end up not succeeding there, uh, taking on additional debt, uh, ending up without a degree, and maybe be made even worse off than they otherwise would be. And you think there are ways to distinguish sort of between uh, that type of nudge from uh, one that's more focused on providing information and forcing active choice? Yeah, I think so. And I, 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 again, I, I agree. I thought I, I really appreciated um, Jay's, uh, Jay's review of the book. Um, Jay, uh, obviously, very, very, very smart and thoughtful. And I, I, I was very grateful that he applied that, that intelligence and thought to the, to the review of the book. And I, I was also grateful uh, for the opportunity to write a response. Um, 
in Ed Next and in Education Next uh, because it, it forced me to, to wrestle with some of these uh, questions even more than I had. And so I think, you know, um, I think figuring out where to be on the, bright, the, the side of this bright line is very important. I also think it speaks to a more um, general point about behavioral strategies, which is that the details matter greatly. Um, and the only way I think to get to get the details right is to develop these in collaboration with with a broad and diverse set of perspectives. And what I mean by that is one, you know, people from different academic disciplines. So a lot of the projects that I work on with now, um, you know, there might be someone who comes from a policy lens. There's also typically someone who comes from more of an economics lens. But increasingly, we're collaborating with people like consumer psychologists or, or social psychologists who bring diverse perspectives. I also think it's not just about academics, right? So we're working with nonprofits that have a lot of experience with these campaigns. We're working with graphic and visual designers um, who have insights about how to communicate. And then in some ways, most importantly, all of the projects that I do, and, and I think this is a good model for education in general, are done in deep partnership with an agency or organization, whether that's a school, or a university, a state agency, or a national nonprofit, because the staff at those organizations and the students who we're reaching out to have invaluable insights about how to communicate effectively. Um, and so I think when we bring together teams like that to develop behavioral interventions, that's key to getting the details right. Um, the other thing that I that I think is important to, to keep in mind um, is is who who's already getting the the types of kind of nudges and uh, and support that that we're trying to compensate for in these texting strategies. And this is one of the points I make in my response to to Jay, and that is that I think. Um, you know, if you look at an 18-year-old who's gotten into college but from a more affluent college-educated family, they're getting nudged all the time. It's just by their parents or it's by their extended networks and their, their family members, right? Parents, we, there's a whole phenomenon for it, right? We call these helicopter parents who are intensely involved in the college process um, and are probably owning a lot of the financial aspects. And so I don't think the model is that we are providing information for or nudges for lower-income um, or first-generation students that they're more affluent or college-educated peers aren't peers from college-educated families aren't getting. I think we're compensating for for the fact that unfortunately students from economically disadvantaged backgrounds um, just typically don't have the same level of family or community supports to do to, to provide the same kind of uh, nudge and encouragement and information. Now, we started with Summer Melt, not just because it is the summer, uh, but also because that's really where you started uh, down this path as a researcher. But I understand you're also now working um, on applying the same basic approach of uh, text messages and other behavioral strategies to a host of other problems related to college access and success. Can you tell us just a little bit about which uh, problems lend themselves to this approach and what you're working on now? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think, and the, the credit for this, I think, goes back at least a decade um, for when Sue Donarski and Judy Scott Clayton wrote their paper highlighting um, the complexities in, in the, the federal financial aid application, known as typically referred to as the FAFSA. Um, so I think for a decade we've been aware that there's complexity in the financial aid process, um, and that's that, that article, uh, in many ways, I think, helped us shine a spotlight to look for complexity at other stages in the process. And, and I think, unfortunately, what we've learned is that 
students in general, but particularly those from, from low-income first-generation backgrounds, uh, encounter complexity all the way up and down the road to and through college. Um, so it's FAFSA, but then it's verifying information on the FAFSA, then it's loans, then it's renewing FAFSA. Um, so that's the, the challenge. The opportunity, of course, is that provides lots of junctures at which we can apply behavioral strategies to help people navigate these complex decisions, um, you know, make active and informed choices to get through them, and then hopefully be well positioned to, to continue on a, a positive educational pathway. So one project I'm very excited about is much further along um, in students' educational trajectories. Uh, this is a IES-funded project. Uh, that, that I've got the opportunity to work on in collaboration with Eric Bettinger at Stanford, Zach Mabel, a graduate student at Stanford, um, and others. This is focused on students who've completed half of the credits they need to graduate from college. So they're not only have gone to college, they've shown some real potential for academic success, but then withdraw prior to earning a degree. And so what we're trying to use in this project that, that's still in the planning stages, but we'll go into the field soon, is leverage these same behavioral nudge strategies to provide students with customized information about courses they can take to complete their degree that encourage them to make use of campus-based resources around financial aid or academic supports, um, and more generally, you know, provide provide motivation, reassurance, and encouragement to uh, finish out this 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 degree in which they've already invested so much. Um, so I think that's one example, again, of a population that's quite far along but still runs into uh, various behavioral obstacles to completing their programs where we can apply these strategies and, and hopefully as a result of that generate meaningful impre uh, increases in degree completion. So it seems like there's a range of problems that these types of approaches could be used to try to address in part because of how complicated we've made the system. Of course, we could also be trying to make that system less complicated and hopefully uh, your success in helping students navigate it won't uh, distract us from our efforts to do so uh, or from sort of uh, addressing other problems like a lack of preparation that may also be a hindrance to success that don't lend themselves to this type of approach as much. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a really important point. Um, both are important points. The first is that the optimal solution probably would just be to make these processes much simpler in the first place. Um, and my sense is, and Marty, I think you know um, much more about this than me, but my sense is that there are a series of ongoing legislative efforts to do that, for instance, with the FAFSA, and my strong hope is that those progress. Um, I, the second point you made is equally, if not more important. I, you know, anytime I talk about this nudge work, I, I try to very uh, strongly emphasize that nudges only are successful to the extent that we have quality resources and opportunities to direct people towards. Right. And so we can only encourage people um, to apply for financial aid to the extent that there's quality financial aid programs available for them to benefit from. We can only nudge someone to make use of academic advising or tutoring to the extent that they're going to have a quality experience and be better off academically as a function of that. And so I think it's very, very important to see nudges as a complement to but not a substitute for existing high quality programs. Um, and, and I think you're right to draw attention to that because nudges are very, very low cost to implement, whereas we know other, um, other interventions, uh, other resources are, are much more cost intensive. But again, the, the nudges only can be successful to the extent that we have quality resources and opportunities to which we can direct people. My guest today has been Ben Castleman. You can find a review of Ben's new book, The 160 Character Solution, as well as an essay by Ben responding to that review 
at educationnext.org. Ben, congratulations on the great work, and thanks for the conversation. Thanks so much, Marty. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.